Thank you guys for joining us for another episode of I Could Never Be here on Popcorn Talk Network. The last week of July this year, continuing to fly by. This song and the movie it's from certainly will make you ready to explore. And today we'll be exploring the career of one of Hollywood's top writers, directors, and producers. But of course, to start the show, I always like to give some advice for a better life. And today, I want to tell you to appreciate what you didn't receive. So often it's easy. The things that we do receive, we're so appreciative, we're so thankful, and say, oh, I love that I got this. I love that I got this. But I want you to take time and appreciate the things that you didn't receive. And I say that because about a week ago was the three-year anniversary of the time when I was in West Virginia, and I was in a position that I wasn't happy with, and I was trying to get out of that position for a year, and I was trying various jobs, trying to get in. I had interviews, and nothing was coming to fruition, and I was like, why am I not getting this? Why is this position not working out? Why am I not you know, getting this job? And it all ended up that I didn't get those jobs because it forced me to move out to L.A. And now I'm in a position that I love. I'm hosting a show that I love on Popcorn Talk Network. And I'm just so happy and getting to talk with people. And I'm in a position because I didn't get things that I wanted. And so now I'm looking back and I'm saying, man, I'm so appreciative that I didn't get those things. So I want to encourage you that if you're in a situation in life where you feel like you're stuck, you're not getting things, that doors are not opening for you, that there's a reason. So just sit back and someday you will be thankful that you didn't get the positions and the things that you want. That's a little encouragement. Today's guest knows a lot about encouragement and success and the process that it takes to get there. He was one of the writers and producers on Independence Day with Will Smith, as well as Godzilla with Matthew Broderick. He also produced Mel Gibson in The Patriot. He's also a spearheaded TV shows such as The Librarian and currently on TV, The Outpost, which is on The CW on Tuesday nights. Please welcome Dean Devlin. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Every time you hear this song, this song from Independence Day, does it bring back the memories? Uh, sure does. You know, uh, uh, it was the second film that we did with mm-hmm. composer David Arnold, and uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a great collaboration. The guy was an amazing and is an amazing talent. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, th- this score uh, I think is up there with his Stargate score. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Which was you know just a year or two before that. We talked before the show the number of projects that you've done, and you, obviously you have your own entertainment company now. How many projects are you currently working on development and are just constantly floating around in your mind of like, oh, maybe we could do this, or oh, we'll you know, have this if we could pursue in the future? How many are, are in your mind right now? I, I don't even know, to be honest with you. I mean, there, there's, there's several that I would like to write. There's several that other people in my company are developing and that we work together with. There's several scripts that were, were spec scripts that mm-hmm. we, we purchased, that we're developing. And then there's a lot of ideas that people come in and pitch us all the time. And then we try to you know, develop those. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit fishing. You know, yeah. you, you got to come up with a thousand to get one that works. Yeah. But uh, that's kind of the nature of the beast. No, certainly, yeah. A lot of those things, you know, don't come to fruition. And if they do, maybe it's several years of planning. And I certainly want to talk about that. I think you know, sometimes when you're creating content, you want it to get out right away, but then it is that timing thing of the, if you wait five more years, you'll have more name recognition. You can get bigger stars in there. I think that with La La Land, uh, the person, the creator of that, uh, his name is escaping me right now, but he tried to make that project, I think five years earlier. And if he'd done that, he probably wouldn't have had the all-star cast that he had. It probably wouldn't have gotten, you know, pushed out and distributed the way it did. Well, you just never know. My, my father used to describe, describe getting a green light like this. He said, if you could imagine a tunnel that's two miles long, and every three feet there's a string that comes down from the ceiling, and there's a ring in it at the bottom. And all the strings are swinging like this. 
and you have to throw the dart at the exact moment they all line up, that's getting a green light. Sometimes it happens very quickly. Uh, uh, Independence Day, we wrote that script in basically two weeks. Wow. We sent it out on a Thursday, and we were in pre-production on Monday. Um, other projects I've done took five to seven years to get it up and running. So it, it, every project's different, and you never know what's going to work or when it's going to work. Yeah, well, I'm going to talk about a lot of the projects. If you guys want to follow Dean uh, before and after the show, you can certainly do that at Dean Devlin, at official Dean Devlin on Instagram at Dean underscore Devlin on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at the only MC, and certainly again here on Popcorn Talk at the Popcorn Talk on Instagram and on Twitter. One project that stands out to you that you've done is there one that you, you look back and you constantly think about as you know, man, I'm glad that this got done. Listen, anytime you get something made, you're, you're grateful because mm-hmm. it's hard to get stuff made. Um, so I, I can't say there was any one particular one that I'm, I was more happy about getting made. Uh, but there, there were uh, projects that were more fulfilling, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sometimes more fulfilling creatively, sometimes more fulfilling financially. Um, uh, but every, every project has a different thing about it that made it special to you. Is the industry, you know, when you started, uh, we talked about, you know, one of your first projects, uh, The Bodyguard, uh, <laughs> way back in 1980, and we have a picture of a company that, oh, has yeah. the industry changed significantly, I mean, in 38 oh. years? Oh, my God. It's, it's a totally different business. I mean, it's completely different. You know, uh, um, I'll try and make it as short as I can, but, you know, the history is that the movie studios were all going to go out of business in the 70s. You know, they they had spent a lot of money on some big, giant blockbusters, and they, they didn't do well, and they were all in big, big trouble. So, and, and television was exploding. So the studios at that time kind of handed the reins over to a bunch of young people, and they kind of let them do really crazy stuff. But because of that, you ended up with movies like The Godfather and uh, Raging Bull and Easy, you know, uh, Easy Rider, mm-hmm. a lot of really innovative stuff, and it kind of changed things. And then came the birth of the real blockbusters, you know, starting, I think, with The Sting and then mm-hmm. Jaws being the first mega one. So in that time, there was an enormous amount of um, reliance on the filmmakers, you know, and the filmmakers had a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, all the studios are now owned by corporations – and they have all the power, and which is why you see on film after film after film, directors being replaced and massive reshoots done by other people. So the, the films you watch today, for the most part, with you know, some exceptions, they are the work of a lot of executives. And uh, I think that that's uh, not been a great thing for our industry. Not being a good thing because you, you're taking away the creative aspect in one person's vision? I think the thing is, is that Filmmaking is a collaborative business, but it's yeah. always been led by a visionary. Hmm. And I think the more we diminish that vision and and try to, to do a consensus uh, creatively, uh, that we water down the work and that, hmm. that it doesn't have the, the kind of originality. You know, hmm. today, almost every studio really doesn't want to do a bigger picture unless it is based on some other IP. They want to be able to justify that there's an audience that wants to go see it. So every movie mm-hmm. has to be either a remake or a sequel or a reboot. Based or off based a book or yeah, a video game or yeah. an old TV show. And, you know, if, if, if that were the case back in the day, there never would have been a Star Wars. There never would have been Close Encounters. There never would have been Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and, and I was having this argument with some studio heads, and I s- said that. And I also said there would never be Independence Day. And when I said that, the head of the studio said, you're right, I wouldn't make Independence Day today unless you called it War of the Worlds. And I think that that's not a great thing for the movie industry. Wow. 
Yeah, it's it's crazy because yeah, you look at the what is out there, and there's so many um, sequels, and there's so many different projects that are made, but they're all based on other things, or they're continuations of a franchise. Certainly, that's what we're seeing. That's right. Marvel and Star Wars and everything else out there. You pers- well, in, in a way, movies have become television series. Mm-hmm. It, we've almost completely reversed it. When I when I was growing up, television was very formulaic and it was very controlled, and, and, and nobody wanted to make a mistake because you were dividing the pie, the audience, you know, within th- three or four segments. Uh, but movies was really experimental and doing interesting things and wild things and taking big chances. Well, now uh, uh, there's less studios. Mm-hmm. And they spend a lot of money, and they're very worried about taking chances. So it becomes more and more and more formulaic. And they become part of these serialized stories that go on for many, many movies. And yet on television, we're seeing really innovative, creative stuff because there's now 500 channels. Yeah. And the only way to really break through the noise is to do something interesting. Is that why you started you know, in your own entertainment company, be able to have more control in the projects coming out and be able to offer that uh, creative outlet? That was part of it. I think the other is recognizing a, a character flaw in myself. Hmm. And uh, I'm not very good at working for other people. And when I try it, it doesn't usually work out. Sometimes it has, but for the most part, mm-hmm. it doesn't. I mean, even Independence Day was a script that Roland Emmerich and I spec'd. You know, we did it outside of the studio system. And because there were nine studios at the time, all nine studios bid on it. And the winner gave us complete and total creative freedom. So I just don't have a very good personality for working for other people. So I kind of needed to start Electric Entertainment Mm -hmm. to to have a playground to do the kind of stuff I believed in. Is that, you know... A good route, do you think, for people nowadays? It's it's easier to be able to put out their own content and be able to create their own production companies to get out a vision. I think it depends on your own personality. Uh, I think it depends on the types of projects you want to do. Um, I, I think the good news today is that there is so many different ways to create content and to share content and distribute content. Uh, for some people, the studio system is the exact right place to be, and they should be there, and they do good work there, and that's correct for them. But, uh, you know, uh, other places uh, are, are more entrepreneurial. I mean, mm-hmm. look where we are right now at yep. AfterBuzz. I yep. mean, they didn't exist a few years ago, yep. and suddenly now it's this industry. Yep. But it was started really uh, um, on a vision that someone had. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a corporation saying, you know what we need to do? <laughs> Yeah, and it's good that we, yeah, we're in a situation in a society and we have the technology to be able to get that out and to be able to really succeed. Uh, Looking back, you know, your first project, uh, The Bodyguard, 1980, you were born into kind of a Hollywood lifestyle, right? Your parents were involved in the entertainment industry. That's right. Uh, I mean, it it was a divorced family. Yeah. But my father was a film producer and my mother was an actress, so I grew up on movie sets. I, you know, from the, you know, Growing up, sometimes you know they they start off wanting to be a fireman and a cop and a cowboy, and eventually, <laughs> for me, it was always movies. I mean, from day one, I, I have no memories of not wanting to make films. How probably. young were you on sets? Uh, my mother did a guest star on a, a show called uh, The Man from Uncle, which was a spy mm-hmm. show. Yep. And in the show, she's supposed to be carrying her three-year-old kid, and I was three years old at the time. And I remember she came home and said. Uh, uh, do you want to be the kid in the show? And I said, well, 
do I get to be the person who says lights, camera, action? And she goes, <laughs> no, that's the director. And I said, no, thanks, Mom. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, did you know at that point exactly what part of the entertainment industry? There's you know, so many hands that go into making something. Did you know at that point that, that you wanted to be a director and be able to be in control? I always wanted to tell stories. You know, for me, it, it, it's a, it, they're bedtime stories. You know, it, and, I, and I've always loved stories. I love hearing stories and I love telling stories. I love being at dinner parties and hearing people tell their stories. So, yeah, for me, at, from the youngest age, I wanted to be part of telling stories. Was, you know, that, uh, and you said it never varied. You never wanted to do something else? No, never, never. I always wanted to be an entertainer. How did you see your path going when you're that young? Did you know when you're saying, "Okay, this is what I want to do"? Did you were you envisioning how that path would work out when you were getting older? Well, I, I from a very young age, I was studying all types of aspects of filmmaking. You know, I uh, I was at, at 13, I was the youngest person at Sherwood Oaks Experimental Film College, uh, and at 12, I think I was taking acting classes in uh, in Hollywood. Uh, my parents would have to drive me and drop me off. <laughs> I was the only kid there. Um, uh, at 13, I won Best Filmmaker in California in a student filmmaking wow. competition. Um, but it really was Star Wars that changed everything for me. That was that was when I knew the kind of thing I wanted to do. You know, uh, mm. I was actually the ninth person in line for the very first showing at the Chinese Theater, and I was by myself. Uh, and that first spaceship shot overhead, and I thought, "Wow, yeah. that's cool." Then the second spaceship came chasing it, and it went on and on. And, on. and by the time that thing was finished, I was out of my chair. And I said, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> this is what I want to do. And so uh, that, that cemented it for me. And I know a lot of the projects that you've worked on have been that kind of you know, sci-fi and, and fantasy realm. Is that because of Star Wars as well? Well, I think Star Wars cemented it. I think it started when my mother guest starred on the original Star Trek and she came home and she had a prop phaser and she gave it to me. And I think that was that was the crack. <laughs> you know, that was the heroin that started the addiction. But uh, uh, it was cemented by Star Wars. What was your first taste, you know, being on, you know, the set of The Bodyguard? I think you were you were an actor in that. Right. And a production assistant. I was working as a production assistant. My, my father was dead set against nepotism and he never really yeah. wanted me to be involved in his stuff. Um, but I guilted him through my grandmother and he got me a job <laughs> uh, as a PA on it. And on my birthday, when I turned 16, he said, uh, you can have a line in the show. And so they pushed wow. me out in front of the camera, and I, and I got to have one line in the show. What was your first taste of actually, you know, when you're growing up and you see your, your parents working in the industry, maybe you can see it differently. Was actually being on set and doing the work of a production assistant and, and seeing how, you know, that work can sometimes be non-glorious. What was that like, that first taste for you? Well, for me, it was the golf carts. Mm. Because okay. my, my father had an office at what is now the Warner Brothers lot. But back then it was shared Warner Brothers and Columbia Pictures. And my dad had a deal at Columbia Pictures. Mm -hmm. And he had a golf cart. So I could drive that golf cart. <laughs> and I would drive all over the back lot. And I would recognize these places I was driving through. I'm driving through the sets of Bonanza and mm -hmm. the set of something else I'd seen or a, an action movie. And I felt like I was in all those pictures. And... Then you drive behind the set and you see that it's just a facade, that there's nothing yeah. behind it. Yeah. And, and it, it, it was so exciting to me. It was like learning how to do a magic trick. And, and, and I wanted to do that magic. I wanted to create that magic. 
Talk to me about you know the 16 years between that and Independence Day. Independence Day was 1996, and I know Stargate was a, a few years before that. I think in '94. Correct. Still, that's 14 years, and, and one of the reasons I have this show. People hear your name, and they think, oh, yeah, Independence Day. But you were in your mid-30s when Independence Day. So what was the 16 years and 14 years between Stargate and My Bodyguard? How did that 14 years go? Uh, well, it, it, it was a roller coaster. Um, I had intended to go to college and to study film, and... Uh, it didn't work out that way, and I, I ended up. Long story, but I ended up. I didn't even graduate high school, so I had to go out and get a uh, an equivalency diploma. Uh, and then I moved to New York. Um, I, I was invited to go to NYU because I had won that award mm-hmm. that I told you about. Uh, but very quickly they booted me out and <laughs> said, <laughs> "No, no, 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 you can't be here." And I ended up. Um, I ended up getting a job as Al Pacino's chauffeur. And that really turned me on to a whole other aspect of movie making that I'd never experienced. Because growing up in Los Angeles, anyone who had a, a photo and a resume was an actor. Yeah. But in New York, you couldn't just say you're an actor. You you had to you had to prove it. You had to say you had to, where did you study? Who have you worked under? You know. Yeah. It was a very different thing. And I got really inspired by working for Al, and uh, I ended up auditioning for a Broadway play, and I got the play. And that kind of gave me a whole brand new appreciation for the craft. Now, what people don't know is that actors on Broadway don't make any money. (laughs) (laughs) And so when the play was over, I was actually completely broke and homeless. And I was homeless in New York for about two and a half, no, about three months. Uh, Now, definition of homeless. I I was, well, I no longer worked for Al Pacino, but I still had a key to his car. And I knew where he parked it at night. So I literally slept in the backseat of his car without him knowing it because <laughs> I had nowhere to live. Um, and then finally, after about three and a half months, uh, I, I, I was able to cobble together some money from a, 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 a job at a, a fast food place that I was able to grab. And I used that money to come back to California. Um, and what was interesting is coming back from California, even though I was originally from California, uh, people perceived me as a New York actor who'd come to L.A. And it mm-hmm. gave me a cachet that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And that started an acting career. And so I, I, was, I, was, I was an actor throughout the 80s. Mm-hmm. But with my coloring, uh, I, I was kind of uh, assigned to playing either drug dealers or, yeah. or gang members or janitors. And it was not the career I'd force, you know, I saw for myself. Uh, and then one day I auditioned for uh, a part in a really lousy sci-fi movie. <laughs> Uh, but I needed the money. I needed mm-hmm. the I needed the job, and it was shooting in Germany. And I fly to Germany, and I suddenly see these amazing looking sets. And I can't believe the sets look this good on a budget this tiny. Uh, and and the director is really good with the actors, and he's really good with the camera. And and I came over to him and I said, you know, you're a really talented director. I don't know why you're doing this this piece of crap script. And he said, well, you know, when I wrote it. <laughs> So uh, it was Roland Emmerich, and it was the first movie he had directed in English. But he barely spoke English at the time. So I said to to Roland, I said, would you mind if I kind of, you know, improved my dialogue a little bit, made it a little bit more natural? And he said, please, it would be great. And so we had about two or three days shooting like that. And then he pulled me aside off the set and said, we have a big problem. He said, all the other actors are very upset with you. I said, with me? And he said, yeah. I said, why? 
He goes, well, you have all the best lines in the movie now. <laughs> so he said, would you mind rewriting their lines too? And I said, sure, no problem. Yeah. And that's what started my partnership with Roland Emmerich, and we went on to make films together for 12 years. Wow. That's it. That's incredible. Was it, uh, you know, I want to, before I get to that, I, I got to know, have you ever talked to Al Pacino? Was that ever brought up that you were living in his car? Oh, he's, this will be the first time he'll, he'll, he'll have found out <laughs> that I spent four months living in the back of his car. <laughs> He yeah. might have wondered why it had a smell all of a sudden. How did you tell you? Did you have to clean it out when you, you know, woke up in the morning? <laughs> well, as I said, because I had been his chauffeur, I knew yeah. when the car is taken out. I knew where the cleaning stuff was for it. And I knew that there was actually a bathroom in the garage that he parked it in. So I had a bathroom I could use, <laughs> and there was a place to sleep, and uh, it got me through the time. When, you know, you were starting out with Roland. Well, we'll fast forward back to Roland. When you were starting out with Roland, what do you think – you know, allowed him to take the risk with you? Well, Roland, even before he had developed his skills uh, uh, with script and, and directing, he was always visual. He was, he, he was, he actually started wanting to be a production designer before he wanted to be a director. Hmm. And the problem was the kind of movies he wanted to design, no one was making them in Germany. Mm -hmm. So he figured, well, I better go make it if I want to design it. Uh, so he was always extremely visual, but he didn't really know Hollywood. You know, he grew up in Stuttgart, Germany. Mm -hmm. So after we did this movie, it was called Moon 44. Uh, it wasn't a great movie, but it visually was stunning. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it caught the eye of Hollywood, and, and they flew him out to California to do his first picture. But he was uncomfortable. He didn't know the politics of Hollywood. I was the son of a movie producer. I knew that. So at first he hired me to be kind of an assistant, and I helped kind of navigate waters with him. And because we had had the experience of me rewriting dialogue, he asked me if I'd write a script with him. And so uh, uh, we wrote this script, and it was a movie that never got made, but but it started that process. So when he got offered his second, his next film, uh, uh, I was brought on to be the writer, and that kind of started. And that was a movie called uh, Universal Soldier. Hmm. And that obviously got remade, I think, right? Or that was made into uh, that was also had spinoffs, right? I think there's been. Three or four movies since then. There was a short-lived TV series, uh, but I wasn't involved in anything yeah. except for that first movie. Well, let's talk about you know get back into uh, Independence Day because that kind of catches us up to that point. And I appreciate you being so open. I mean, it's incredible because again, people hear the the story and they think, oh yeah, Independence Day. But like the the time between that, I think, is incredible and the risk that you took to be able to you know put in the work and, and be able to do long hours. I'm sure when you when you were starting out for Roland and he asked you to, to do that extra work. I don't know if that was paid or additionally, or if that was like, hey, do you mind doing this? And you had to prove yourself. You know what? I got very lucky. Roland was incredibly generous with me. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I stopped acting at mm -hmm. the point I was going to work with him. And, and he gave me a salary that was just kind of ridiculously good for mm -hmm. a guy in his early 30s who <laughs> was a failed actor. Um, but I, I think it was as we started working together that we realized that that we saw the same movie. And the biggest problem that, that a writer has with a director, or, or especially a producer and a director, is when they see different films. And then they're constantly butting heads. But uh, for 12 years, every time Roland and I worked together, we saw the same movie in our head. And that made it a lot easier to collaborate. And then it got very exciting, and we got we developed this rapport, and we could, we could write very quickly together, and we could conceptualize movies. And, and it, would, it would only take a few brush strokes 
for him to describe something to me and I would get it and I'd know what to do. And so it was, it was a very successful partnership in, uh, creatively in that we, we shared a vision. Is that rare to find? Is it hard to find? Does that take many years for most people to be able to find someone who has that same vision? It's very rare. It's very rare. Uh, uh, that's why there's so much butting heads. Um, I've been lucky enough to have a couple really great partnerships in my life. Mm-hmm. I've been very surprised by it. But, uh, you know, the partnership with Roland was remarkable. My partnership uh, with John Rogers was amazing. A partnership that I had recently with Marco Schnabel has been amazing. And, of course, the partners in my company, Mark mm-hmm. Roskin mm-hmm. and Rachel Olshin. So I've, I've been fortunate to find people who, who, who share a vision with me. And whenever that happens, uh, uh, really good things come about from it. Yeah, as it did uh, with Independence Day. And it, you said that took you guys two weeks to write? Yeah. I mean, we'd spent a lot of time uh, – well, not a lot of time, but we, we'd spent time blocking it out. And, and we did a lot of three-by-five cards mm-hmm. over what you know how we saw it. But the actual writing happened – I mean, it was literally like – it flowed through us. It was – we went off to Mexico. Uh, we rented this house. Uh, uh, he, he was in the upstairs. I was in the downstairs, and the kitchen was in the middle. We would meet at breakfast, and we would not leave until we were going to go to sleep at night. It, it, we would just write all day long, and it was joyous. I mean, we were laughing at every joke. We were getting excited. Uh, I sat on one end of the table with a laptop. He sat on the other end of the table with a drawing pad, and he would storyboard the scene while I was writing it. And then when I was done writing it, he would look at the scene and – what was different from mine, he would either like or not like. And the parts he liked, he would redo the drawings. And then he would hand me the drawings, and I would see the drawings. I'd go, oh, that's much better than what I wrote. And then I would rewrite <laughs> it to the drawings. And what was interesting is, at the end of that two weeks, not only did we have a script, but we literally had a storyboard for the whole movie from beginning to end. Wow. And that helps when you're pitching it. Well, it helps when you're trying to figure out how much the movie costs, and how many shots, and how many digital effects, and you know how, how many shooting days do you think you're going to need? Because we had a real blueprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, we were so lucky because we gave the script to our agent on a Wednesday. They sent it out to the studios on, on Thursday morning. By Thursday afternoon, we had four offers. By Friday morning, we had nine offers. We wow. closed the deal by the end of Friday, and we were literally moving into our offices on Monday morning. I mean, it never happens like that. Was the thought with that movie that it would be as big as it is? And no. obviously star Will Smith and so many other names that we are huge – was that the plan? What was going through your mind of what you thought the end result would be? We thought it would do a little bit better than our previous film, which was Stargate. Yep. And uh, we didn't think it was going to be the biggest hit in the history of movies, which it was when it came yeah. out. Um, uh, we, thought, we, thought, we, we thought we had improved as filmmakers. We thought we had improved as craftsmen. And we thought, oh, well, Stargate was a hit. This, is going to be a, this will be a bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we weren't kind of prepared for the kind of crazy thing that happened. And, of course, Will Smith was actually someone that the studio didn't want in the film. They were convinced that if we hired an African-American in the lead role, that we would hurt the movie for him. Wow. And uh, uh, it it became a a pretty big battle for us to get it. And uh, um, You guys were pushing for him? Oh, we we absolutely wanted him in that role. And uh, uh, ultimately, they relented and let us do it. They were nervous about it, but they, they ultimately said yes. And obviously that turned out to be yeah. a, a great choice. Worked out decent. And I, another uh, fact, I love factoids about movies, uh, was, you know, you're talking about it. it makes sense when you said the movie was written in two, two and a half weeks, was the presidential speech, which yeah. I think uh, revered by many as the, the greatest presidential <laughs> speech in the history of movies, maybe tied with Air Force One uh, and Harrison <laughs> Ford, also a great speech. But that was written in just, uh, what, a couple minutes? 
So what happened was is we knew that we wanted to have this inspirational moment. Mm-hmm. And the way I described it to Roland, as I said, I said, this should be like the St. Crispin's Day speech, you know, from Shakespeare's Henry IV, mm-hmm. or yeah, Henry IV. Uh, uh, and Roland said, great, we only have to write a speech as good as Shakespeare wrote. <laughs> and I said, well, look, let's not get bogged down on it. I said, let me just kind of write something real fast as a placeholder, and we'll rewrite the speech later yeah. and really get it right. And so I went off in the other room, and I just threw the speech out. It took me, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I came back in, and we didn't even read it. We just threw it in. We knew it was a, it was a placeholder. And then, you know, things started moving very quickly with the script and getting set up and casting. Next thing I know, we're in uh, uh, Utah, and we're shooting that scene. And I was literally at my hotel. and went, oh, my God, I forgot to rewrite the speech. And I was terrified. So I drove quickly to set, and they were doing a rehearsal of the speech. And Bill Pullman was standing at a podium, and all the extras lost their mind and started cheering. And I was wow. like, maybe the speech is not so bad. Literally, the only thing I changed uh, uh, was the line, today we celebrate our Independence Day. Because the studio wanted it, the title changed. Yeah, the studio wanted to change the name of the movie to Doomsday. And Roland and I were dead set against that. <laughs> um, so, we, uh, 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 so we threw it into the speech, hoping that that would help solidify getting the title. For people who are watching this and are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Describe what goes into making a movie. Like five steps, you know, making a movie for dummies. Because it sounds maybe easy of, oh, we're writing a script in two weeks and then we're getting it picked up by a company. Five steps of making a movie. What is your what is your thought process for five steps? Well, I don't know if I could divide it in five steps. Yeah. But, you know, the, the most important thing is, is figuring out why you want to write it. Mm-hmm. Because I think scripts always fail if you're writing it because you think other people will like it. If you're not writing it because it's something that you want to tell, that you're excited about, if you don't have a passion for your own story, then no one else will. Um, If you do have a passion for it, then there's a chance, just a tiny chance, that that passion can become infectious and people will share it with you. Mm -hmm. And Independence Day really started with Roland's passion. It wasn't mine, I have to admit it. Roland had this, this vision and this idea and he got really excited about it. But his excitement ultimately got me excited. And that excitement drove the script and drove everything else. So I say the first thing is you have to figure out why you want to do the project you want to do. Uh, then you need a good script. And you got to, you know, we were lucky in that we had one after two weeks, but I've worked on other things where, you know, you work on it for seven years and you still don't have a script that's really quite wow. working. So, you know, you need a good script. You can't, you can't make a movie out of a bad, a good movie out of a bad script. Uh, and then it's super important to cast it correctly. You know, you could have the best script in the world, but if the wrong actors are playing it, it's just not going to work. Uh, then once you have that, then you got to shoot something that really works. You know, you have to have a brand new experience on set. You know, I think one of the mistakes filmmakers do is they echo the experience they had in the script writing process. But, you know, there's a whole lot of new elements happening now. There's actors and their chemistry and, and the set that you're on and things that you didn't anticipate. And you have to be open to that and, and allow that to flourish. And then you got to throw all of that away and edit a brand new movie. And just because you spent eight days trying to get that one shot where the sun came over the mountain doesn't necessarily mean that shot should be in the movie. And you have to be very brutal in that editing process. And you have to make a movie with what you've got. Um, and then I think marketing is really important. Mm-hmm. If you market the wrong movie, people aren't going to come see it. So you know, I, I would say all of those steps are enormously important to making a, a feature film that works. 
Talk to me about timing because you know you said some scripts take seven years. Yeah, that one was two weeks. And I know a lot of people when they are working on a project, they can sometimes get frustrated because it's not being made, it's not getting picked up, it's not doing that. And like we we talked at the beginning of the show, uh, and I gave the thing about my example where the whole year, and I was trying to and what the timing. Have you had situations where it, it makes you appreciate the timing of not having something picked up, or an example in life where you look back and you're like, man, I'm glad that the timing worked out how it did you know i think i look at it differently i mean to me i I try not to focus on the results of the work for me it's about the process of doing the work you know i i read a quote that was very impactful to me a long time ago and it was um bliss is proximity to creation and i think the more we live in the act of creation the happier we are the more we focus on, well, did it make me rich? Did other people like it? Did it get good reviews? Did then you're then you're handing over your happiness to other people. So, to me, uh, I I look at my projects, I call them successes or failures based on how good the creative experience was, not necessarily whether or not they were well liked or, you know, some of my favorite work was my most uh, uh, my biggest financial failures. But for me, they were amazing creative experiences. So uh, I try to look at my life as, as, as a series of creative endeavors and, and, and trying to make those endeavors as joyful as humanly possible. Has that ability to kind of block out, you know, others' critiques and good or bad, you know, because you don't want to ride too high on what people are saying and then think that anything you can do is invincible. Has that come over time with you, or is that something that you've been you've trained yourself to to kind of be able to just focus on your vision? Well, I, I, again, I think it's you know, it's it, I think having been an actor first helped because when you're an actor, you take the reviews very very personally. Because you know, they're not just reviewing yeah. your work. They're reviewing how you look and how you walked and you know, what your eyes look like and the color of your skin. So, so when you're an actor and you get bad reviews, it really knocks you on your butt. <laughs> so you have to develop a tough skin for it. But I remember the first time I got a bad review for something I wrote, I thought, oh, I can write something else. <laughs> I didn't like that. I'll write something else. And then I start to realize it doesn't really matter what anybody says. You know, if, 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 I can, if, if I can get the work made, if I can make a living doing it. Uh, then that's that, that's great. That that's all I really needed is is to make sure that I could you know pay my rent, uh, uh, and then uh, then when when audiences like my stuff, that's much more meaningful to me than critics or 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 where it lives in the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have to say where my joy comes in is sitting in the back of the theater, and did they laugh at that joke that we worked on so hard? Did they cheer at that action sequence? You know, when they don't cheer, that's when I get uptight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, there's still some jokes in Universal Soldier that I know are funny and they've never gotten a laugh. <laughs> but uh, uh, to me, it, 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 if, if we concentrate too much on, on, on how other people perceive our work, then, then we're literally handing our heart over to other people. I love in this show, we have a lot of people in the live chat. We have a live chat for every single show. Every Monday when we're live here on YouTube, you can comment in the live chat. And someone in the live chat, Andrew Ford, says, one doubt means heavy doubt. <laughs> and I think yeah, that's a good that's true. It's a good thing to say because you just need that one, I guess, that one crack to form, and it can become a huge crevice. Well, I mean, look at it this way. You could, you could have a day where all day long everyone says, man, you're having a good hair day. Boy, your hair, I've never seen your hair look like it. It looks fantastic. And then one person goes, what the hell is with your hair? 
You go home and all you think about is what the hell's with my hair? What 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 what, what was that? It couldn't. Doesn't matter. Fifteen people said it was great. You, you, we as humans tend to focus on the one negative thing that somebody mm-hmm. says, you know. And if you can step back and take perspective and just go, well, probably the fifteen people who thought it was great, probably they weren't right, and the guy who said it was, the probably none of them was right. What do I think about it? And you look at it, that's all right. <laughs> Is there a, a reason you know you did a lot of a lot of movies and then you switched over? Obviously, now doing the Outpost on the CW and of course the Librarians franchise that you switched over to TV versus movies. And I know you come back with you know Bad Samaritan, but is there something that you love more? about TV versus movies or was it like what we talked about at the beginning of the show where you just maybe have more freedom in TV well I hadn't intended on doing television I had done one television show called The Visitor back in the the 90s and and it was not a joyful experience it was not a good experience and I really thought all right, TV's not for me Mm -hmm. and then um, I ended up getting a new agent a a, a brilliant man named uh, Brian Pike and he introduced me to uh, another very creative and brilliant man who was running uh, uh, TNT at the time, a man named Michael Wright. And he said, I, I really want you to go have lunch with Michael Wright. So I, I, I went out and met with him, and, and he said, we would like to have your kind of movie on our network. And I said, well, first of all, I'm very complimented that you think that there is a my kind of movie. That's kind <laughs> of cool. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, I said, but... Uh, I'm not sure why it would make sense for me to take one of my movies and do it on your network as opposed to doing it in the theaters because, frankly, I make more money that way. <laughs> yes. And he said, yes, you're right, but if you do it for me, you can own it. And I said, what? What, what, was, this? what was this? What was that old word? And he said, I, he said, I will pay a license fee. I'll put up 75% of the budget of the show for the right to air it for four years. You put up the rest. You own it all the, everywhere else in the world immediately, and in four years you get it back domestically. I thought, okay, that sounds kind of cool. So we did the first Librarian movie. This was in mm-hmm. 2004, yep. and it ended up being this kind of crazy success. It was the, the most – it was the highest rated movie on television. I don't mean movie of the week. I mean any movie. We beat Lord of the Rings. I remember it coming out, and it, it was, was incredible. And so that – that that was a great experience for us, and it it turned my company from a company that was doing uh, projects at studios to being able to do stuff independently that we owned and developing our own library. Uh, and and I adored working with Michael Wright, and there was a man there named Sam Linsky, and and we ended up with this partnership. So we made three of these movies, and then they said, "When am I going to get a TV series from you?" And I pitched them Leverage. And then we did Leverage for 77 mm-hmm. episodes, and they said, we should do Librarians as a TV series. And then we did – so it was, uh, again, 11 years of an enormously successful and good partnership. Is stuff like that, I don't want to say random, but it's, it's waiting for that opportunity and then seizing the opportunity? Like with that meeting, it, it, had that meeting not come about – well, you know, uh, I forget the golfer who said it, but uh, he said golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that that's kind of the thing is that it, when people try to plot their career too much, um, um, they could miss on opportunities that are great. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what's the old joke? If you want to make God laugh, make plans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, we hadn't planned on doing television. And it turned out to not only be an enormously uh, uh, fun and creative experience. Uh, but it built my whole company. Mm-hmm. Uh, our company, Electric Entertainment, is probably the only production company in in this town that has no investors at all. 
We're mm-hmm. 100% funded by our library, a library we got to do yep. primarily through television. Some of it's been f- through foreign sales, and some has been the features that we independently financed. But for the most part, it's been television. And that, as you said, it came because we took a lunch. Where do you see the future of the industry? You see it more in television or more with movies or now there's so many different outlets, uh, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and YouTube and Apple. Where do you see it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about the industry. Um, I, I'm, I'm, worried, I'm worried that the theatrical experience is dying and I think the theatrical experience is important. I think it's important for filmmaking, but I also think it's important for audiences. You know, there there is something about being in a dark room filled with strangers and having a shared reaction, whether we're, we all get scared together or we laugh together or we cheer. And it's a bonding thing. It's it, it's something that, that, that ties us together and makes us realize that we're more alike than we are different. And I worry that now that most of our connections are happening online, we're only connecting to those that we think are similar to us. And I think that that is causing enormous divisions in our country, politically mm-hmm. and sociologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the movie theater is the one thing that no matter how rich you are or how poor you are, you go to the same movies. Yeah. You, go to, you go to, you know, it, it, it bridges so many gaps. I remember when we did Independence Day, we had a three-month tour where we went all around the world opening it. And I would be shocked that I'd be in cultures that seem to me completely alien to the United States. Pun intended with Independence Day. <laughs> but they going. laughed at the same jokes. They cheered the same moments. They, you know, no matter where we were, each place that we were hoping to get a reaction, we got the same reaction. And at the end of that tour, I thought, you know, we are a lot more alike than we give ourselves credit for. Is there a solution to getting back to that type of content and that type of feeling? Well, it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of places. Uh, I think uh, what MoviePass was doing was very helpful, yeah. uh, but doesn't right now they're in trouble so I don't know if that's going to last but I think that was a really good idea um, but I think it, it's really going to come from whether or not distribution companies are going to put out movies that offer something beyond just superhero films uh, and, and by the way I'm look I line up for superhero films I like superhero films mm-hmm. don't get me wrong but you need to have a variety of experiences and there's a whole lot of menu items that are no longer being served and I think that's turning the movie experience into a singular experience instead of the multicultural experience. And, and it, unless there's a, a, an enormous will by the distributors, we, we will slowly whittle this audience until they age out. And then, then it will be. It'll be all Netflix. It'll all be direct programming. And uh, that may be our future. I hope it's not. I, I love how you put that. I never thought of that. I don't think a lot of people maybe listening have thought about that, of that. You're right. We see so much when we're here on our computers and looking at our cell phones, and we're not together. We're not talking. We're not listening. We're not just feeding off the energy of other people, which makes a huge difference in the way that we live and the way that we act. And and again, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful that that we are connecting this way and, you know, that that we are communicating. I think reading skills have gotten off because of this stuff. But... You know, I, I think these things should be additive and not subtractive, and and I I feel like it's diminutive that, that we're 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 eliminating parts of 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 our culture. Uh, I, I have two daughters, and uh, I went to pick up my daughter from a party the other day, and everybody at the party was on Instagram, and I said, you know, 
to me, Instagram is when you're not at the party. <laughs> it's how you connect to people who aren't in the room. If you're in the room, <laughs> it is better to actually look at them and speak with them. <laughs> and, and I worry that, that we, we are going to lose our coping skills. We're going to lose our communication skills, or at least those types of communication skills. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, look, I'm, I'm a big advocate for Internet and programs like this. And I think they're fantastic. But we still actually need to look at each other and talk to each other. <laughs> it's important. Yeah, you're at a party and you see that someone liked your own photo when they're 10 feet away across the exactly. room. Exactly. Or, or texting to each other and you're sitting on the same couch. It's yeah. like, you have vocal cords. <laughs> it's okay to speak. What still drives you in making content and putting stuff out there and being creative? And obviously, The Outpost is on again right now on the CW on Tuesday nights. We want to tell people to watch that, encourage them. But for the future, what, it, what drives you to be able to make content? What motivates you? I just like telling stories. And I love watching the reactions. I love to see, to see how people uh, interpret what you do. Um, so for me, again, it, it, it's... Uh, I. I there are really great artists who should win Oscars and be thought of as giants in changing our culture. I've never viewed myself as anything like that. To me, I'm a craftsman. And uh, I may not make the greatest sculpture ever, but I'll make a really comfortable chair. And hopefully every year I make a better looking chair and a stronger chair and a more durable chair. But I really look at my work as being a craftsman. And because of that, that frees me. I don't feel like I need to change the world with what I do. But if I can contribute to the world and, and give you an hour to forget about your troubles, then it makes me happy. You know, I mean, Outpost is an apolitical show. It's not about anything you're dealing with in your life today. Mm -hmm. But maybe for an hour you can watch it and forget about the problems you have today and go off into this fantasy world and enjoy yourself and, and, and let your mind go someplace else. And that's, that's awesome. really what we try to do. In speaking of what we tried to do, we, I'm including all filmmakers out there, including ones who are just starting out, and I want to know what advice you have for them. What encouragement do you have for the people who are trying to get their first project picked up or are writing something and trying to break into this industry? What advice do you have for them? Well, my number one advice is to do what you actually love, not what you think other people will expect of you. You know, I've met people who, who try to do commercial filmmaking because they're hoping that it will give them the power that one day they can make that artistic film that they want to make. Make the artistic film that you want to make. Then there's others who make artistic films hoping that it will build their records so they one day can do the commercial film they want to do. <laughs> but I, I think it, it, you got to be really honest with yourself. You know, I, I meet a lot of film students who talk about uh, Francois Truffaut and the new wave movement of the 70s. But on Friday night, they're standing in line to watch The Hulk. You know, if you're going to stand in line on Friday night to do The Hulk, then maybe that's the kind of movie you should do. If you're going to stand mm -hmm. in line to watch, uh, you know, a, a retrospective of Godard, then th to make that movie. But be honest with, with yourself. And, and I, I think very often people try to do what they think other people will respect them for doing as opposed to where their own real passions lie. You know, as I said before, I, I think passion is the single most important part of filmmaking. And if, if you don't start there, I think you're doomed. Well, I, you haven't been doomed in your career. You've been very successful, and I appreciate you coming on and being able to be open uh, about a lot of the things and certainly the successes that you've had very well-deserved, and I know your work ethic in, in doing so. 
is what's driving that forward and that passion and that vision. So I appreciate that. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Again, Outpost on CW right now on Tuesday nights. I want to ask some questions uh, people are getting in the chat. Uh, one person asked, uh, what episode was your mom on on Star Trek? It was the Wolf in the Fold episode, and it's the one where Scotty is uh, uh, possessed by the spirit of Jack the Ripper. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Uh, people wondering, you know, obviously what the future of the librarians are trying to get it maybe on another outlet. Is that uh, a possibility still? Are you still trying that? It, we we pretty much exhausted it. Okay. So uh, I've released the actors from their contracts. Okay. We tore the set down and we are literally, as we speak, selling s- the studio. The auction is going on, I think, up in Seattle, right? Uh, Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. yeah. The upper, yeah, northwest. And uh, finally, uh, any information? I know you've kind of... Uh, taking yourself away from the third Independence Day and you said you don't want to do any more big blockbuster movies but 10 minutes ago you said you don't want to write plans so is there any hope for coming back to that or where do you see that project going? I mean look I'd love to make big films again I I just think that I'm not good at studios Hmm. Uh, uh, there are people who navigate that well there's people who, who function really well there and and if I'm honest with myself I'm just not good at it so I, I doubt that I would get back involved with uh, uh, with that franchise. Uh, I wish them well. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that they do good stuff. You know, if Roland's involved, you know, he always has a great vision, and I'm sure he'll do something interesting. But I just know for myself, yeah. I, I, I would rather spend my life doing things that, that, that I feel like represent what I'm trying to do as opposed to being part of a collective and just putting in my my two cents. And I think, honestly, that's why you've been successful, because so many other people in the world are trying to do things to make others happy and to do things that they think others will enjoy, and others can see that the passion isn't there. Yeah, I think think if if you make the thing that entertains you, maybe it'll entertain somebody else. And and sometimes I've been right, sometimes I was wrong. I mean, there was a point in my life where I really felt strongly about doing a World War I fighter pilot movie. I thought, I love these films. I haven't seen one in years. I made one. I loved the film. I loved making it, and nobody went to see it. (laughs) So sometimes you're wrong. But but I don't regret making that movie. I would make it again because it was a joyous terrific experience and maybe one day people will just it'll be an un, uh, uh, an undiscovered uh, classic <laughs> well I can tell certainly from people who are talking to the chat they're very appreciative of your work and again I'm very appreciative of you coming on the show thank you so much thank you I really do appreciate that again check out The Outpost on the CW on set seven uh, seven o'clock I think eight o'clock, uh, eight o'clock. I think it, it varies yeah depending on sorry no, no nine o'clock nine, nine o'clock, o'clock. Eight o'clock is the 100. (laughs) Yes, certainly on the CW Tuesday nights. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of I Could Never Be here on Popcorn Talk. We hope that you were able to take some time and be able to learn a little bit, feel motivated, and certainly uh, learn from Mr. Devlin's path and certainly his hard work that he was able to do to make this happen. Again, we are live here every single Monday on the Popcorn Talk Network, which you can follow at the Popcorn Talk on Instagram and on Twitter. And you can follow Dean here at Dean underscore Devlin on Twitter. I know you're certainly very active there and love enjoy uh, connecting with people and you can follow me on instagram and on twitter at the only mc we're also available on apple podcasts and certainly people can comment on the youtube we had a lot of people in the youtube chat we're so thankful for them like and comment subscribe tell a friend be able to just make this world a better place that's what it's all about right it should be should be (laughs) let's get back to that point guys thank you for joining us we'll see you next week
producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.